I've been rereading, as I mentioned last week, the autobiography of George Mueller with uh, my, my seventh grade boys on Wednesday mornings for Bible class. And just read this week that, uh, so, so each chapter is sort of a year um, as he's sort of praying through his year and the different things that, that he had happened. And so at the end of the year, one of the chapters, he prays, he praises God because in May uh, of that year, he had prayed for his flock in Bristol um, that they would be spiritually prosperous. And so this is at the end of the year, and he is praying in December that God has answered that prayer and that he feels like the flock there at his little church in Bristol is more spiritually prosperous uh, than they have ever been at any time. So uh, our elders, we met together this Friday morning early, and we prayed for the church here at Hope Bible Church, and we prayed specifically, uh, it's May, it's as, uh, as, as Providence would have it, uh, so we prayed specifically that we would be able to look back in December of this year, and that we would be able to say that God has blessed us here at Hope with greater spiritual prosperity uh, than ever before. And I think the passage before us uh, today is a passage that if we could get our, our heads around, uh, we, could, we could certainly be a more spiritually prosperous people. And I, I've, I've struggled with this passage this week. I really have. And I, I've prayed all week long that God would, would help this to land, um, to land well, to land that the Spirit would guide this. So I'm, I'm going forward this morning um, with that thought. I think you'll, you'll understand why that, that seems especially um, evident in this passage as we go along here. So let me just say, uh, open by asking you this question. Have you ever been mocked for following Jesus? Uh, worse have you ever mocked someone else for following Jesus? Or have you as a professing Christian, so somebody who is a Christian, have you ever sort of in your heart mocked someone and thought, you know, that person just kind of takes Jesus too seriously? Uh, maybe you've never said it, but you've thought it. Um, my go-to biblical example of this is, of course, Daniel, uh, almost certainly Daniel was a young teenager. He was taken away to Babylon as a young teacher, uh, teenager, taken away from his family, taken away from all of his friends from the temple. He was identified as one of the best and the brightest, uh, and he was put into what would have been, you know, the, the Babylonian Harvard by Nebuchadnezzar himself to be trained for three years. But... Walking through the wilderness as an exile, uh, 900 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon, that makes one scrawny, and you can't have scrawny little, little teenagers serving Nebuchadnezzar, so the, Nebu the king said, well, let's fatten them up. And so they're going to be fed from my table, Nebuchadnezzar says. We're going to give him the best food so that we can make them strong. But that's a problem for Daniel, Daniel says in chapter 1, verse 5, um, he says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so, as a young man, a young teenager, Daniel was so devoted to Yahweh that he was willing to risk his life because you don't just decide not to eat Nebuchadnezzar's food. And he respectfully says, 
Can I please eat something else? He was risking his life. He was telling the king of the known world at the time, I'm sorry, I I have a higher allegiance than you. Now, as far as we know from the text, Daniel and then his three friends, famously Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Uh, They were the only exiles who seemed to have, at least as far as we know, at the very least we can say there were very few of the exiles who shared this devotion. So can you imagine what might have been said among the other exiles who were being educated and were eating at the king's table? There goes Daniel again, overthinking all of that Bible stuff. Daniel, just eat the food. Everybody else is doing it. Come on, man, stop causing us all trouble. Daniel... Jerusalem is 900 miles away. Like, that is so, like, last year. Like, we are, we are moving on. We are here in Babylon. Eat, eat what you want. You know, Daniel's like one of those homeschool kids. He never really got socialized. We don't know what's wrong with him. He's a weirdo. But you know how the story ends. God blessed Daniel, and he blessed his devotion, and he turns out to be the smartest and the strongest. But the point is, Daniel was devoted to Yahweh. He resolved in his heart to not defile himself. There could have been great consequences to his devotion. Here's the question for us this morning as we come back to John chapter 12. Can a person be too devoted to Jesus Christ? Is that possible? Is it actually possible that there are people out there who are just complete weirdos and they've sort of overdone it in their devotion to Jesus. So we're back in Bethany. We are with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's just a few weeks after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus has come back to town with his disciples. And there's two people who do two very different things. Mary makes an extravagant gift, an extravagant offering to Jesus. And as you're going to see, Mary's sacrifice, her worship of Jesus is, is by any measure extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Judas then, one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles is critical of Mary's offering. And he says that offering should have been used another way. And like I said, I've been challenged by this. I want to identify with Mary. I want to be the guy who would prefer to see myself humbly pouring out everything I have of value to Jesus Christ. But as I've studied this passage this week, I have seen more of Judas in my heart than I probably would have preferred. Because I'm often critical of other people's devotion. And it turns out that my criticism of their devotion is often rooted in my own sin. So I'd like to invite you to be honest with yourself this morning, that we would all be honest, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to be willing to ask ourselves, would we agree with Judas? Would we say, Mary, you need to roll some of that devotion back? So we're only going to take eight verses this morning. Jesus' words to Judas, I think, confront the besetting sin, or at least one of the besetting sins of we American Christians. What do we love more, Jesus or money? So here we go. Uh, Verse 1, a feast in honor of Jesus. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, this is a feast that is being held in honor of Jesus. And we're going to come back next week, and we're going to trace a little bit of the timeline. Next week will be the triumphal entry uh, right after this. Uh, So for now, just know that it is Passover, and Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. Uh, John actually says it was six days before Passover, and he says, therefore, uh, Jesus came to Bethany. And I think we have some indication here that this was Jesus' normal pattern. Hey, it was almost Passover, and Jesus did what he always did. He came to Bethany. What we actually see in that final week of Jesus' life is that Jesus is staying in Bethany, and he's coming in each day. He comes in on Sunday, and he comes in on Monday, and he comes in on Tuesday. He doesn't seem to come in on Wednesday, and then he comes in on Thursday for the final time when he comes back for the Last Supper. So Jesus, whenever he comes to Jerusalem, he stays two miles just outside of the city in Bethany, probably with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. This will be Jesus' final Passover. This will be Jesus' final Sabbath day. So this feast is going to be held on Saturday night. Jesus will die on the cross the following Friday. So he is one week away from his crucifixion. If you knew you were going to die in one week, who would you want to spend your last Saturday night with? Jesus spends it with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, with his dear friends. So Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. Sabbath day begins at sundown on Friday, and it lasts until sundown on Saturday. If you go to Israel today, beginning on Friday night, if you're, if you're coming into town on, on Friday night, you better get there fast because you're going to want to get your food because everything's going to close at sundown. And it's going to be very quiet, and people are going to be, for the most part, inside. And then Saturday morning, all through the day, it's very quiet But then at sundown on Saturday, everybody begins to come back outside. The stores open up. People go to dinner. And there's a real festive atmosphere after the Sabbath, immediately after the Sabbath. So apparently, these friends of Jesus have planned a party. They've planned a feast. So Jesus' miracle, I mentioned this last week, it ended kind of abruptly. Jesus probably had to get out of town because the Pharisees were alerted to his presence. So maybe Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew that he was going to be coming back for Passover. And they said, hey, when you come, we want to have a big feast in your honor. Martha's doing what Martha does. Verse 2 says she is serving. Lazarus is reclining at the table. This is a well-to-do family. We've already talked about that. Probably this is a big feast. A big, nice party. So this is very much a passage about how we use our money. God has entrusted each of us in here with a certain amount of money, and we are charged with managing it as uh, according to the stewardship that he has given to us. And so you might wonder, is it wrong to use your money for a celebration? And I would say that I learned from this passage and many others in the Bible that it is not. That there is a time for feasting. There's a time for, for enjoying one another's company in this kind of environment. Jesus is at the feast. He does not condemn it. 
He doesn't say, guys, we could be doing something more holy right now. Our devotion to Jesus does not demand that we avoid celebration. Israel had three national week-long feasts built into their law. You had to stop and celebrate. So the Bible teaches clearly that there are times when we can pull out all the stops. You can make the fancy punch. You can fill the pastries with the sausage. You can buy the nice cuts of meat. Even, dare I say it, I hear some of you open up the expensive bottle of wine sometimes. And this is good, and God is pleased. Because gluttony is sinful, so if we feasted all the time, that would be wrong. At our house, right after we adopted Archie, somebody sent me a rice cooker, and that has been a part of our life for seven years. If you come to our house, Many nights, you might have rice and beans, or rice and eggs, or rice and whatever else we have for the night. So most normal nights, we are not feasting, unless you consider rice feasting. But Christmas, weddings, graduations, birthdays, Easter, I think we Christians ought to blow it out. We ought to feel free to celebrate. There's also a time to rest if I might say. There's a time for vacationing. There's a time to be with family and to reconnect. There's a time to give and receive gifts. It's okay to bless people. And you know what else? It's okay to be blessed and not say to that person, oh, you shouldn't have done that. There's a time to receive that and be joyful people. So Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, maybe even the whole village, are together, they're having a good time, and nobody's feeling guilty about it. The meal in itself is an extravagant display of devotion to Jesus Christ. So then we see the devotion of Mary, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So at some point, Mary gets up and she goes and gets this alabaster jar. Mark calls it, I think, an alabaster jar. We'll look at Mark in just a second. Of nard, and she anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. So I had to look up nard. It's actually spike nard. It's called spike nard in some places. Turns out we have the spike nard essential oil. Um, I actually looked up, if you buy spikenard today in a huge vat, you can get a huge like barrel of spikenard. It's $250,000 for a, baller, a, a barrel of spikenard. It's an Indian plant that grows in the Himalaya mountains. It has hairy spikes shooting from the root. It's an ointment that is prepared from the root. It's highly valued. And in the ancient cultures, it would have been something like an heirloom. Like you might have had a, a jar of spikenard that would be passed down like a diamond throughout generations. It has a strong, distinctive aroma. And it gives off a, a strong perfume. It has medicinal purposes. It's interesting to me that John makes it clear that once she broke open this bottle of spikenard, the whole room, there was a fragrance in the whole room. Her worship of Jesus, everybody was aware that she was extravagantly worshiping Jesus. So down in verse 5, Judas says that this jar of nard 
could have been sold for 300 denarii. One denarius was a day's wages, okay? So 300 denarii, that's plural, uh, was a year's wages. So 300 days of work, not counting Sabbaths and feast days, all right? So that was sort of a euphemism for saying a year's worth of wages. One commentator I saw estimated that that jar could have been, in today's value, $25,000. It's an extravagant gift. It was something that you would use sparingly, a bit at a time. So it says that Jesus and Lazarus are reclining at the table. When you visualize these meals, so the Last Supper, which we'll get to sometime later on in the year, Uh, Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples. He's not sitting in high-backed chairs. Uh, Don't don't think of Da Vinci's Last Supper with everybody sort of lined up along one table, you know, sitting with high-backed chairs. There were short tables. They were maybe a foot or so tall, and and when you ate, you reclined, you laid down on pillows. So you would have maybe one arm supporting you, and you would eat with your other hand, which means that you might have your feet right in, some, in front of somebody's face. Like, the feet are just sort of out there. I mean, this is sort of foreign to us. I don't like feet in my food, right? But, you, you know, if you're, if you're reclining at a table, Lazarus, and, you know, Lazarus, he may be raised from the dead, but his feet are just as stinky as they ever were, and so they're all sitting there together. By the way, this is why it was so important. This is why foot washing was so important. This is why it was so important to have somebody there at the door to wash your feet, a servant, a very, very lowly servant, maybe a child or an elderly servant would be there to wash the feet because you didn't want stinky feet at the table. And so Mary comes over and in front of everybody, she breaks open this jar of nard and she wipes Jesus' feet with the nard with her hair. By the way, this is the same woman who bowed before him and wept when he came to town when her brother was still dead. It is difficult for us to overstate her act here. It is her active devotion. She is demonstrating in a very real, tangible way how much she values Jesus. She knows who he is, and she is responding accordingly. We can talk about giving our all, having a heart of worship. I doubt any of us have come anywhere close to Mary's active devotion here. So does this seem crazy to you? Does this seem like too much? Both the breaking of the nard and the wiping, like who wipes somebody's feet with their hair? This humble humble act, and Jesus is pleased. Jesus does not say, okay, 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 put that away. You're wasting it. Mary, get up from your feet. That's too much. Jesus receives her devotion. Humor me for one second. Turn over to Mark chapter 14, because this is the same account. Mark gives us a couple of other details, and I think it's worth reading Mark's account briefly so that we can just pick up a couple of things here. Mark 14, just two verses over, beginning in verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment in pure nard, 
very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why has this ointment been wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with me, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Have, have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Mark says that this took place at the home of Simon the leper. Uh, John doesn't really say where it took place. Some people have speculated that maybe Simon was like Lazarus and Mary and Martha's dad. Maybe he was a leper who got healed. We don't know. We don't know who Simon was. Um, but he also tells us that she broke the flask. So she used it all. $25,000 poured out. And Mark doesn't specifically name Judas, but he says those who were indignant. So perhaps there were other disciples, at least for the moment, who were joining with Judas in his criticism. But Jesus says, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. And he says, truly, truly, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Do we want to be noticed by God or by man? Because God noticed this act. This act is remembered by the God of the universe. In fact, here we are, 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this extravagant and beautiful thing that Mary did for Jesus. She literally, literally, that's the right use of that word, poured out $25,000 worth of perfume. That is not a metaphor. She wasn't willing in her heart, I am willing in my heart to pour out this nard on your behalf. She wasn't just willing, she actually poured it out. I think sometimes we can make ourselves, we can say, Lord, I am willing to give up my whole life, but I sure hope I never have to. That was not her mindset. So the question comes back, does what Mary did seem crazy? What do we do with this? I mean, I, I have to start by being honest. I, I just, this is where I am this week. I'm going to just be honest. I don't give Christ the, diver, the devotion that he deserves. I am very devoted to other things. I prefer, if I'm honest, to say, how much do I give to Christ? Uh, how much do I have to give to Christ rather than how much can I give to Christ? And so I would suggest, if you feel like I do, that we all don't just get up from here and hear about Mary and move on and feel guilty about it, but go back to our regular lives. What if we recognize that we fall really, really short and we repent? And we confess that we don't give Christ the glory that he deserves and that we humbly ask him to give us the grace to see him as he really is. And then we go out and we listen to the spirit as he directs us, we give. I believe there are countless books recorded in the heavens filled with acts of devotion like Mary's, all of them done quietly and humbly in places where only God sees. It's a monumental act of faith. And I think if you could ask Mary right now, and we all will be able to one day, she would say it was worth it. 
I would do it again. I wish I had two bottles that I could pour out on behalf of him. But that night, there were those there who were questioning her actions. So we started off with uh, the devotion of Mary. I'm calling this next part the destruction of Judas. But Judas Iscariot, we're back in John 12. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mark doesn't mention Judas specifically, but John does. John feels like, I, it's like John is kind of saying, I can't write Judas's name without putting that little parenthesis there. Oh, by the way, that's the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas was treacherous. We know about Judas's treachery, but what we learn about here is that Judas was greedy. At the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees issued a statement. They said, it says, now the Pharisees uh, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he would let them know and that they might arrest him. So, so Judas hears that the Pharisees are looking for somebody to let them know where Jesus is. And that's very much what happens when Judas brings those Roman soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane a week later. Judas answers their call. And I think we find out more here about Judas' motivations in that. He is a pragmatist. He says that money could have been used way better than that. This act was not wise. And, and how, how bold are his statements considering the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting right there and is very approving of what Mary has just done. There will always be people who despise your devotion to Jesus Christ. And it can be so disheartening to take that step of faith, to do that hard thing and have somebody come and criticize what you've done. And it's very easy today. On social media, I mean, you can just have at it on people's acts of devotion from the comfort of your own couch. Now, you might expect that this would come from the outside, but this is the horrifying thing for Mary in this circumstance. This is coming from the inside. Judas Iscariot is one of the 12 disciples. He hasn't betrayed Jesus yet. He's still carrying the money bag. So they must have thought this was a good guy. One of the 12 disciples is criticizing her for this massive act of devotion on her part. And Judas unleashes his judgment. And Mary has to have thought to herself for a moment, what if I've made a huge mistake? What have I done? What if I've wasted $25,000? And we should be warned right here, brothers and sisters, be very, very, very careful before you criticize someone else's devotion to Christ. Be very slow to question service and sacrifice. Don't tempt one of Jesus' sheep to doubt in their moment of faith. It says, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a thief. 
He wasn't really concerned about the poor. He kept the money bag. He wanted Mary, oh man, if I could have had that $25,000 in the money bag, I could have pilfered even more. I could have taken more for myself. He was greedy. He wanted more money for Judas. And he wanted to manipulate Mary in her active devotion. Mary, I wish you had talked to me. I could have advised you so much better on how to use that, that treasure. It's funny to me, too, how people so often appeal to wisdom when they start talking about extravagant giving. But Jesus knows his heart, and he calls him out. Jesus, Jesus is, is almost kind of cutting here. Oh, Judas. Oh, you're concerned about the poor. I have good news for you, friend. There will always be plenty of poor people. You can go out right now and you can help the poor, but you won't always have me. Jesus is very, very concerned with feeding the poor. Judas is not. And just to be clear, Jesus is all about it. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. He says to the Pharisees, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. He says, whoever has two tunics, you should share with the one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So Jesus is not providing a way out for Christians. Just be clear here. Jesus is not saying, oh, your devotion to Christ can enable you to ignore the plight of humanity around you. In fact, if you are devoted to Christ, you will love the poor because Jesus loves the poor. And you will have a heart that wants to please Jesus. Jesus is rebuking Judas because he is pretending to love the poor as a front for his own greed. Judas is using his concern for the poor to increase his own wealth. And worse, he wants it to look like his good intentions are are out there when he really intends to steal. James says that the word of God is a mirror. We can look into it and we can see ourselves. We need to take a long look at Judas here because Judas is committed to using things that look good to get what he wants. Jesus condemned the Pharisees just a couple of chapters earlier, by the way, for the same thing. For, for robbing widows, having them put their money into the temple coffers, and then using that money on themselves. And you guys, it is very much in vogue today to be very vocal about the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And there are a lot of people who speak loudly about the need to give money to the poor, but it is very, very easy to speak. And it's another thing to do it. Nobody is stopping anybody, by the way, from helping the poor. Any of us can help the poor anytime. Serve God, serve others, and don't tell other people about it. Don't use your concern for the poor as a means for personal gain. And not just money. Be on guard against using your concern for the poor to gain position and power and influence because there's position and power and influence right now in speaking about the poor. Don't snap that selfie while you're serving and post it online. Don't write that blog that you hope is going to be turned into a book one day so that you can maximize your service. And most importantly, don't criticize others 
when their service doesn't match yours. Wait until somebody asks you to tell about your service. Don't try to use your good deeds as an opportunity to speak about yourself. And I would add, be skeptical of individuals or organizations that are raising money for the poor. Just like Judas, there's always going to be a temptation to take money out of those accounts. Ask to see the salaries of those leaders. Check out the, how the money, what, how much money is being used in administrative costs. How much money goes into buildings and expenses. What exactly is that money being used for for the poor? For thousands of years, people have used generosity as a way of getting greedy. In my experience, the most generous people don't talk about their generosity. Like Mary's devotion, it's seen and it's not heard. Those who are most engaged in ministry to the poor and the oppressed and the orphan and the widow don't have a lot of time to be going around calling other people out. Personally, I have been moved far more by watching people serve than I have by listening to people lecture about the need to be out there caring for the poor. And so Jesus tells Judas bluntly, leave her alone. Stop criticizing her devotion. Don't be a stumbling block to this faithful woman. Brothers and sisters, there's so much criticism in our world today. Everything that is done, it feels like, is subject to public Critique. There are people out there who feel it is their job to go and find acts of kindness and find all the problems. Acts of kindness versus words of criticism. That's what we see in Mary and Judas. And it's so much easier to speak than it is to do. Christians have joined in. Christians, many Christians feel like it's the spirit of the day to find problems with everything. And what I, what I learned from this passage is that Jesus isn't pleased with my critical spirit. All of our devotion is imperfect. Every single one of us, if we were to be lined up here and we had to say the true motives of our hearts when we have served and we have given, we would, we would be embarrassed. No one serves God with all the right motives. Christians should be serving and giving and we shouldn't be looking for ways to criticize others who are serving and giving. Also, we need to recognize that most of the greatest service to Jesus is done out of sight. Many, many Christians today serve Jesus in ways and they serve their neighbors in ways that nobody knows about. And that's as it should be. Let's be slow to be critical of other Christians and their acts of devotion. Slower to speak and quicker to act. A footnote here, Mark, don't turn back there, just Mark, same passage, 14, 10, and 11. I'll read it to you. He connects the story of Mary with Judas' betrayal. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went out to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Apparently, Judas had seen enough. Apparently, his greed was consuming him. So he went out and he sold Jesus not for a $25,000 bottle of nard, but for 25 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. Judas desired to be rich. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's interesting to me that Paul roots his warning in a call for contentment. Be content with what God has given you. How much of our criticism of other people's devotion is rooted in plain, old-fashioned envy? Boy, I wish I had a bottle of spikenard like that. (laughs) I tell you what, I wouldn't use it like that. I envy that family's vacation and the fact that they went to that nice restaurant. You know what? I think they should have taken that money and they should have given it to the poor. That church built a massive new building. Think about how many people that could have fed. I don't know their motives. And I am not talking about letting down on accountability. I mean, that church and those elders, they are responsible for how they use their money. I'm talking about how we look at things and judge people's motives. At some point, somebody built this building. I mean, this orange brick was kicking. At some point, people were like, have you seen that orange brick building? They should have taken that money and given it to the poor. And yet, here we are today, and we're thankful to have it. Let's just be honest with our own hearts. Sometimes our criticism of other people, even our acts of devotion, are rooted in envy and discontent. And Paul says those are wicked desires, and they lead to snares. I got this quote from John Piper. This was kind of his closing summary. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. Judas' love for money kept him being devoted to Jesus, and it caused him to try to stop others from being devoted to Jesus. So here are just four quick thoughts in closing this morning from a a difficult passage. This is a difficult passage. It's funny, I've actually seen this passage a few times used in a couple of different contexts this week, and I think, I'm like, I don't think you're using that passage right. So let's let's just try try to apply it here. First of all, don't ever listen to anyone who says you need to cool down your love for Jesus. Just ignore that. There is nothing and no one that deserves our devotion more than Christ. You cannot be too devoted to Christ. Even service to the poor, though good and blessed, should not exceed our devotion to Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that in James 1.29, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But so many people don't read the second part of that verse. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Devotion to God is necessary. Don't don't ever let somebody tell you to cool it down. Secondly, don't be a person who goes around telling people to cool down their devotion to Christ. Judas says, stop pouring that out and give it to the poor. Jesus says, leave her alone. Quit your conventional wisdom. Stop responding to other people's extraordinary acts of devotion with your practical advice. Don't tear down the faith and devotion of others. Don't talk people out of giving extravagantly. Don't talk your children out of giving extravagantly. Celebrate it. If somebody gives your child some money or they earn some money, 
and they want to give it all away, don't be like, now we need to be wise. You should save some and use some for yourself and then give some to Jesus. Like, you're just teaching them that in all of life, we keep some for ourselves and then we do some for ourselves and then we give a little away. Why not teach them? No, give it all. Give it all. Be, be extraordinary in your giving, in your devotion. Maybe we should all be more childlike. Model extravagant devotion. And believe me, if I told you some of the things that have been told to me by practical Christians, you'd be shocked. And I've ignored all of them. Third, don't demand that the devotion of other Christians looks just like yours. All of our devotion is not the same. We are a body. We have different abilities and talents. You really don't want noses going around to fingers and being like, why can't you just smell better? Not just smell better, but actually smell better. I mean, even if Judas had been well-meaning in his intentions, he still didn't need to stop Mary from pouring out that perfume. So we could all stand, I would say, to just think better of one another. Don't be tempted to go around and criticize people who are doing ministry. I'm talking about actual doers, people who are actually doing ministry, not those who are just talking about it all the time. If somewhere, someone is out there doing the work of ministry, encourage them before you offer critique. You may think what they're doing is really silly, and you may have better ideas for those resources, but you don't know everything, and Jesus may be saying to you, leave them alone. Don't try to tell somebody how they need to be devoted to Jesus. How about this? Let's be more critical of our own devotion to Jesus before we're critical of others. And then finally, let's humbly ask God to make us more devoted. I am so impressed with Mary. I can't believe that somebody hasn't written one of those women of the Bible books about Mary. I mean, you know, she's the one who's sitting at Jesus' feet, and then she's weeping at Jesus' feet, and then she's wiping Jesus' feet with her. I mean, this, this woman really is a model of devotion for us. And here she is pouring out this priceless possession. I want God to make me more like Mary. My prayer, after, after studying this passage, my prayer genuinely has been, God, help me to say, how much can I give rather than how much do I have to give? Because I want that heart that values Christ and that says, no, really, really, actually, it would be worth pouring it all out. He's that valuable. If he requires me to give my life, he is that valuable. He is that worth it. And we will all stand in heaven if we live that way. And we will say, it was totally worth it. It was worth it to live that way. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us a spiritually prosperous church. And I pray that that would lead to greater devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. Guard us from the sin of being critical 
about other people's devotion. Father, hold us accountable. By all means, Father, help us to be personally and corporately accountable for what you have entrusted to us and to use it well and to use it wisely. But Father, as we look at others, as we consider others and their acts of devotion and the things that they do with those things that you have entrusted to them, Father, may we be generous in our assessment. Father, we thank you for Mary and her example. God, may we be more like that. May we be willing to pour it all out, the whole family fortune, if necessary, so that we can show our devotion to the value of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.